Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name's Stephen. I'm a deacon here at Sojourn. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, if this is your first time with us, you may have noticed we have uh, a construction project happening right out here. Uh, you may have also noticed that means we have no bathrooms on this side of the building. So uh, we apologize for the inconvenience. If you do have to use the restrooms, we ask that you walk around and you can be directed around the building to our restrooms over here in our kids' wing. And um, if uh, you need to uh, get some more coffee, feel free to do that as well. So all this being said, we will eventually, Lord willing, in a couple months, have human-sized bathrooms and uh, handicap-accessible bathrooms. So that is the goal. We can hold that in mind. Uh, so thanks for being with us. Thanks for your patience. Um, this morning, if you've been with us, uh, we've been going through the book of Jonah, and we've uh, gone through the first two chapters, and now we're at chapter three. And in chapter three of Jonah, we actually see the goodness of God in all of its fullness. And what's so funny about that, and what's funny about the whole story of Jonah itself, is that it's kind of satirical, in that you see this prophet, this man of God, who God has called out, and you see him respond to God in a way that is not godly. And you see all of these people who shouldn't respond to God in a, in a godly way, the Ninevites, the sailors that Jonah gets on board with in chapter one, they all respond appropriately. I got a little bit of mic stuff. Sorry about that. Anyway, so they respond appropriately. What's so satirical about this and what makes this kind of ironic is that we shouldn't expect that. Uh, you should expect the man of God to respond godly and the, the, uh, the pagans to respect, uh, respond in a pagan way. And what's, what we see in that is it's a mirror. It's a mirror for us to see when we see God's mercy, when we see God's goodness, when we see his love, when we see all these things that should inspire affection towards God, is that what happens in our own lives? And for me, that doesn't happen, not naturally. Uh, and, I, and I see this brokenness in myself of how I don't want the things I should want and I want the things that I shouldn't, most clearly in my marriage. And when I see this in my marriage, I see it in my tongue. And I don't mean I see it in my tongue in a way that I say things I shouldn't. I mean I clearly see that my taste buds have been installed backwards. What I mean by this is I have discovered I like chicken and pork and nasty hot dogs better than I like all beef hot dogs. I like 90-10 beef less than I like Taco Bell meat. And I like Cool Whip more than I liked real whipped cream. Uh, yeah, that, you know, well, there it is. I'm broke. And so my wife proved this to me beyond a shadow of a doubt one day while we were having dinner with her family. Her family has what I like to call fancy meals. They are fancy. She thinks they're not fancy because she grew up with them. I was raised by a long line of rednecks and cattle thieves, literally. I know fancy when I see it. This is fancy. It's a, and, you know, it's a nice fancy meal, and it was okay. And then we got to dessert. And dessert is a crushed pecan pie with a chocolate mousse filling with raspberries on top. I knew I wasn't going to like this. And in my mind, I was thinking, I don't like pecans. I don't like chocolate mousse. Raspberries are just a rich man's strawberry. Guys, we could have gone to Dairy Queen and gotten an ice cream cake. That would have been way better. <laughs> I thought it. I didn't say it. 
And so she sets it in front of me, and I start to think, okay, how can I get out of this? And I'm like, all right, I'm going to take two bites. And then I'm just going to say, oh, it's so rich, I can't eat anymore. And so that's my plan. I take a bite, put it in my mouth, and it is fantastic. It is the best thing. It was the best dessert I had had in my life. And I didn't like any part of the whole thing. And the reason that I tell that story is to kind of say, that's kind of how I feel like my experience with God is sometimes. In the sense that we should love God and we should glorify him. And it's like somebody's telling me to eat my vegetables. It's good for you and you should do it. But rather, the experience of God is like eating this fancy pie that you think you're not going to like, but then when you try it, you think, I've just got to have more of this. But we're all broke. We don't all experience God and think, oh my, my affections are stirred and I love him even more. And so because we're broke, God has given us stories like the one we have here in Jonah, where we see anecdotally how good he is. And when we see him being good and being a God inspiring affection, it inspires affection within us. And so this morning, as we go through this chapter three of the book of Jonah, uh, I want us to see three ways that God inspires affection within us. We're going to see that God does not give up on us, God sees our hearts, and that God pays attention to us. So the way that we're going to look at God not giving up on us is we're going to look at the minor detail of the beginning of chapter three which is the fact that when Jonah is thrown up by the well onto shore, the word of the Lord comes to him again. If you've been in church for a while, or if you're even familiar with the story of Jonah, this is just kind of par for the course. Of course, Jonah would get told, here, you're going to Nineveh again. But it's actually a plot twist. Because what should have happened is the story should have ended with, and the big fish had dinner. But instead, not only is Jonah thrown up, But God gives him a second chance to come back and tell the word of the Lord to the people of Nineveh. This little detail that God gives Jonah a second chance should make us think, why is he doing this? What in the world? Why? God, it doesn't make sense for you to give this guy a second chance. He literally turned his back on you and ran. But the reason is is quite clear because you see it 13 times in the Old Testament, we are told that God is slow to anger. We are told that he's patient, and not because he has to be, but because he likes being that way. If he didn't, he would change because he's God. And God doesn't give up on people who are far from him. He doesn't give up on the people of Nineveh. Even when they were violent and destroying nations, he sent Jonah to redeem them. And he didn't give up on Jonah, the self-righteous guy. So the truth is that God does not give up on us. And he inspires our affection. That truth that God does not give up on us should inspire us to love God even more. But it doesn't always work out that way. And so the question is, if we know these truths, that God gives us a second chance, that God does not give up on us, how do we live our lives to experience that? And one of the ways that I think we can experience that truth is to think of the stories in our lives that they kind of make us just go, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe I did that. For example, when I was six, uh, I had a friend named Justin. And Justin 
lived across the valley from me. Uh, the valley was essentially not a valley. It was just uh, where they'd mowed the trees down and run the power lines, but we called it the valley. And found out, Justin and I had been going to school together for a little bit, and then found out, oh, that's where he lives. We should go hang out. So I went over to his house, and we started playing soccer in his backyard. And we're playing soccer, and it's great, and it's fantastic. His dog is running around. It's just like perfect little six-year-old land. And then I kick the ball over the fence. And I'm like, oh, I kicked the ball over the fence. I got to go get it. So I run. And I go to his fence. And as I'm reaching for the latch on the gate, I hear him say, oh, no, don't. But it's too late. And I open the gate. And as soon as I open that gate, his Labrador comes shooting past me like a bullet and starts running. And he starts screaming. No, we've got to get him. My dad's going to kill me. No. And then he starts crying like and like shaking. And I do what any six-year-old would do in that moment. I ran home. <laughs> I took off running for home because I was like, I'm not, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't know what's going to happen. And I got home, and I didn't tell anybody. And I never looked Justin in the eyes again except for one time. And that was two days later when he and his dad showed up on our front porch handing out flyers looking for their lost dog. And I saw him because as he's handing the flyer to my mom, Justin is like standing underneath him like right here. And I was sitting on the couch opposite the front door. And as they walk up to the door, he stares right at me. And he doesn't say anything, and I don't say anything, and I quickly like put whatever I was doing down and leave. That's the kind of six-year-old I was. What kind of kid leaves his buddy when his dogs run away? And what's worse is I've done worse things than that. And yet, here I am on Sunday morning, reminding you that God does not give up on you. Because God did not give up on me as a six-year-old little kid who did something so despicable and who continued to do despicable things. And here you are on this Sunday morning being reminded by a guy who God did not give up on, that God has not given up on you. In the same way that he didn't give up on Jonah, in the same way that he didn't give up on the Ninevites, God does not give up on you. And that is something that as we think about those stories and as we consider, oh man, I have done such awful things. As we come to grips with our sin and we realize God has not given up on me, perhaps that realization will inspire affection towards God in that moment. But that's a tough thing to do. But not only does God give us that aspect of himself, not only does he tell us that he doesn't give up on us, but he also tells us that he looks at our hearts. And we see that aspect of God's character this morning in the book of Jonah. So the main section of Jonah is Jonah 3, where Jonah is preaching to the Ninevites and saying, um, destruction is coming. And if you've heard this story before, you don't realize the plot twist of the Ninevites' response. Because throughout the whole story, there has not once been mentioned that forgiveness is available. There has not been a single uh, hint that God will relent. Because this is what happens. When Jonah is spit up in the beginning of chapter 3, 
we read that God says to him, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. And so what is the message that God has given him? Well, we'll backtrack to chapter one. God says to Jonah, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. There is no opportunity there that says, hey, by the way, tell them that if they repent, I'll relent. It's just, hey, tell them judgment's coming. And so when Jonah goes and he gives this five-word sermon to the Ninevites that says, repent for God's going to come and destroy your city, or he doesn't say repent. That's the whole point. He just says, God's coming to destroy your city. And what do they do? They kind of go crazy. It's kind of nuts what they start thinking because if you read what the king says, he says, here's the first thing that we're going to do, guys. We're all going to fast. And then not, our, not, our, not only are we all going to fast, we're going to all wear sackcloth, which is a material which is saying, we're in mourning. And then he takes it a step even further, and this is where it gets rather comical, because I can imagine the king saying, all right, Jonah, is that enough? Is that we're fasting and wearing sackcloth? And Jonah's not responding at this point, because he really doesn't want the Ninevites to receive forgiveness, though he knows that God's working that out. So he doesn't say anything. So when he says, is this enough? Jonah says, meh. And so the king says, all right, all the animals are going to fast. And then after that, he says, oh no, we're going to put all the animals in sackcloth as well. This is a ridiculous idea that God would even consider forgiveness on, based on the, the way that you treat your animals. Jonah would know, hey, man, not only uh, we don't really dress our animals up during times of forgiveness, we kind of slaughter them. But he doesn't say that. Uh-oh, here we go. Got this, push it back, do that right there. Getting it again. Holler. We just, it's the guest preacher microphone mishap. If you're around for Pastor Travis, it happens all the time. So we're kind of used to this thing at this point. Anyway, sorry about that. So here we go, getting back at it. So after Jonah uh, comes back and uh, is telling, not giving any help to the, uh, the Ninevites, uh, they start doing all these crazy things, putting their animals in sackcloth. It doesn't make much sense. And here's what happens. God says, I see your hearts. I'm going to relent. That is not what should have happened. Absolutely 100% wrong. Because the Ninevites did not repent right. They didn't do it right. But here's what we see. God saw their hearts and said, because I know that you're trying to follow me, because I know that this is what you're trying to do, I will relent, even though you haven't asked for forgiveness in the right way. So God sees our hearts. Again, this is something that should inspire affection within us. It's something that we should say, oh, wow, how great and good is God. And yet it doesn't always work out that way because we're sinful and we want the wrong things and we don't see God's goodness all the time. So the question is then, how do we experience the truth that God sees our hearts, that he, that he wants to work with us, that he wants to use us, and he wants to use our efforts, even when we're trying and we get things wrong? And I think the way that we can see that, the way that we can experience that is to take risks. Here's what I mean. I wanted to help a friend out. And a couple of friends, they're having some troubles in their marriage, and they had four kids. And so I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Because I'm such a nice guy, I'm going to take their four kids to the park and give them some time to just chat it out, figure it out, and they'll work it out, and there'll be some goodness there, and then the kids will love me, and it'll be awesome. And so, load the four kids up in the car. We're headed to the park. We get to the park. About 25 minutes being at the park, kid number three loses his mind. 
like on the ground screaming, like cockroaching, you know, or they just like go like that. And I'm like, oh no. And this is what happens if you've ever been the uh, responsible party, like every eye in the whole universe is all of a sudden just on you. And you feel just the heat of the shame coming off of people just like washing over you. And then immediately people act like, oh, it's cool. Like, oh, what's that over there? And it's like, nah, I saw you look. I felt the shame. I know it, right? (laughs) But so there I am. This kid's on the ground. Everybody looked at me and is now not trying really hard not to look at me. And here's the thing. I'm not the kid's dad, right? So I can't do the whole like, oh, I'll give you something to cry about. People will call the police, right? And I can't do the other thing where it's like, hey, man, what's going on, buddy? Like, talk to me about this because he's just screaming in my face. And so I did what any responsible 28-year-old would do is I gently picked him up and again ran away. (laughs) And so I ran back to the car, got him in the car, and it was just like, what in the world? And so I get back to the parent's house, and I'm just like, I don't know what I'm going to tell them. And I get in, and they're just yelling and screaming at each other. And it's like, this, like, this is totally backfired. This is totally backfired. The parents are yelling at each other. The kids are, like, completely going crazy. And I have just utterly failed. And so I walk back, and, I, and they get the kids, and I drive away. And so a week later, I'm talking to them, and they were like, that was just such a blessing for us. <laughs> and I was like, What? It's like, if I'm not remember, if I remember this correctly, like I came back and you guys were like screaming at each other. And they're like, yeah, but it, it, it like got a conversation going that we finally got some stuff worked out. And then what was even funnier is the kids were like, and we had a great time. I was like, no, you didn't. I was there. And what's so funny is like, I totally didn't do that right. I should have had like another adult with me. I should have like thought through like taking these kids to the park on this hot day was probably not the smartest idea. Like I didn't do it right, but God honored my heart. He saw what I was trying to do and he honored that and he blessed that. And so here's what I'm thinking that we do is that if we can take some risks to just try to follow God in ways that we know that he wants us to, that maybe we'll experience him honoring and blessing our efforts in a way that we'd say, thank you, Lord, that you honor our hearts. Here's what I have in mind. Uh, You know, like that whole family dinner thing that you're supposed to do? It's so difficult to do. Uh, What if you just tried it? And then all of a sudden, you know, when the like macaroni ends up like just thrown over on the walls, you're just like, okay, well, there it was. We tried, you know, but what might happen? I don't know. 10 years later, you're talking to your kids and they're like, you know, that was one of the ways that I knew that you loved me. And you're like, are you crazy? You were throwing stuff all the time. How in the world did you even know that I loved you? And they're like, I don't know, just because it showed that you cared. Or maybe it's like, I don't know, dads, you feel like that pressure to do like the devotional thing, right? Well, so let's just say like you tried to do the devotional thing and you don't even crack open the Bible. And the only time you say Jesus is when you're cussing, right? (laughs) What happens if 10 years from then your kids are like, you know, It meant so much to me that you would try so hard so that we could get in the Bible and so that you could tell us about Jesus. And you're like, I never told you about Jesus. We did that like three or four times and you always went crazy. And they're like, yeah, but it meant a lot. I don't know. Maybe God could honor our efforts. Maybe God could honor your efforts in talking to that weird neighbor that you have. You know the one I'm talking about? He's like got the chickens and the loud dog, that guy. Yeah, maybe God's asking you to go talk to him. 
and you're like, hey, like, we're not going to have anything in common for sure. And then also, like, I'm not really good at, like, starting the uh, conversations out of nowhere. And maybe you go over there, and maybe you stick your foot in your mouth more than it's on the ground. And who knows, maybe you go back and check in a week later, and the guy's like, you know, it meant a lot that you would just come over and just see how I'm doing. I don't have anybody in my life who just sees how, just to check in on me. That means a lot to me. Maybe that what God is inviting in, us into that. And maybe if we took some risks, maybe we would see, you know what? God is honoring my heart. He's honoring my desire to follow after him. Even though I'm failing in a misery ball of fire, God's honoring that. And maybe, maybe our affections would be stirred if we would see God honoring our desires to follow him. So that's another way that we might see our affections stirred. But there's also a third way that we see in this passage. Um, And the third way that we see that God might stir our affections for us is that he pays attention to us. And this is kind of understood uh, because if God sees your heart and if God is not giving up on you, then of course he's paying attention to you. Uh, But it's something that's worth taking special note of. We read at the end of Jonah chapter 3, says, when God saw that they had, what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and he did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. And there's no verse that follow this and says, and lo, it was a big deal that God in his mercy would even consider wiping out the Ninevites. It shows what a good guy he is, right? It doesn't say that, but we do read in Psalm 8 that it says, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? There is this idea in the Bible that the fact that God is paying attention to us, he's even looking at us, should inspire affection because we have this giant, cosmic, infinite God concerned with our tiny little lives. And yet, as this should inspire affection in us, it sometimes just comes across as that vegetable truth. It's just something that's good for you and you should try to believe it and it should make you feel better. So how then do we live our lives to practice, to, to feel that truth, to, it, to experience the truth that God is paying attention to us? And I think this is kind of another ironic twist. It's that we should uh, pay attention to our own lives. And here's what I mean. How many of you guys, you ever go on autopilot while you're driving? Um, I do this all the time where I'm like, hey, my wife asked me to go to the grocery store and I end up at the church. And I'm like, how did that happen? Or uh, like a friend will be like, hey, you should come over. And I'm like, all right, that's great. And so I start driving and I start thinking about like what we're going to do. And then all of a sudden I'm at his house and I'm like, I don't remember the past 10 minutes. I really hope I didn't hit anybody on the way here. Uh, and you just, you're just going through, just going through the motions. And I think we do that with our lives. We just kind of put everything on autopilot. We, we just try to pay the mortgage. You're just trying to keep the kids alive. You're just trying to make it through to tomorrow. And you're not really thinking. You're not really paying attention to the stuff that's going on around you. You're just moving forward. And so what would it look like in your life if you could step back for a second and pay attention to what's going on around you? If God, the cosmic God of the universe, is paying particular attention to you, maybe he's doing something. He was doing something with the Ninevites. 
He was doing something with Jonah. He's doing something in your life. The question is, what is it? And I think that if we started stepping back and starting paying careful attention to what God's doing in our lives, that we would see that the Bible's true when it says he's working out things for our good. And we would see God's goodness. We would see him moving behind the scenes in those different ways that only, you know, two or three years later afterwards can you say, oh, I see what he was doing now. I, was, I wasn't paying attention then, but I'm paying attention now, and I see how God was at work, and I see how much he loved me, and I see how he took care of me. What might you see if you started paying close attention? And I think if we did, I think if we started paying attention, that our affections would be stirred and that we would want to be around God because our experience of him would be so good. But even then, we still have a huge problem. And that problem is no matter how many times we can have these experiences and no matter how much we know, it's still not going to be enough. It's not in the Bible, but what happens after the Ninevites repent and the, or the Ninevites repent and the Lord relents, um, they go back to their old ways. It's the Assyrian capital, and the next generation, 50 years later, they are wiped out. The Babylonians come in and take them out. They had experienced the goodness of God. They had seen his mercy. They had believed it, and it wasn't enough. They went back to their old ways of doing things. So we can do the same thing. We can know We can know that God doesn't give up on us. We can know that he sees our hearts. We can know that he's paying careful attention to us. And we can experience those things, and it still won't be enough. So what do we need? What do we, what do? We do? Well, what we need in order to love God the way we should is we need a new heart. And this is possibly the reason that we should be stirred to love God the most is because that he sent his son to give us new hearts. We read in Ezekiel that God is going to take our hearts of stone that are incapable of loving him, incapable of experiencing him as he truly is, and he gives us hearts of flesh. And he's only able to do that Because Jesus came and he lived the perfect life and died the perfect death and was resurrected and gives us new life. The only reason that we have a hope of loving God and experiencing God as he is and having our affections stirred to love him for the good God that he is, the only reason we have a hope of doing that is because of Jesus and what he did. And so... Because that's the only way that our affections can truly be stirred is by believing in him and having him give us new life. We remind ourselves of that truth every week when we do communion. What we remember when we take communion is how Jesus' body was broken for us and we remember how his blood was shed for us. And we remember these things and it stirs, us, stirs our affections towards God because we realize the links that he went to so that we could truly experience him and that we can have our affections truly stirred to love him. So, this is what we read in the scriptures. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, 
This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after the supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes.